The British colonies declared their independence from the King of England on July 4, 1776. In a touch of irony, a cult named English King looks to win the first-ever Epsom Derby held on July 4th. We'll preview the race. Plus, an out-of-the-box way for horsemen to think about the impending H2B visa crisis. We'll have all that and more on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gate. They're about to move in. They roll side. And they're off. As they move to the top of the stretch. It's a hip-hopping finish! This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can find us on Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course, in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really help others find us. And if some of those others just happen to be the ninny hammers at America's Best Racing, then they might do this year what they should have done last year. Include us in their Fan Choice Awards for Best Podcast. I'm not crying over spilled milk, mind you, because as Stephen Colbert once said, tomorrow, that'll turn into free yogurt. English King now with just a length and a half to find and maybe going better. They race down towards the final furlong. English King looms on the outside. English King takes the lead. Berkshire Rocco in second. The rest just simply don't count today. English King has quickened away. How impressive. He was not very highly regarded coming into the year, but when British racing resumed at the beginning of June following the coronavirus shutdown, English King stamped himself as a major contender for the Epsom Derby by taking this trial race at Lingfield Park. English King has been installed as the 5-2 favorite in the field of 17. Seven of those 17 belong to Aidan O'Brien and Coolmore. Let's get more on what to expect in the Derby and the Oaks, which in a completely non-traditional sports year will be run on the same day. To help us out, we welcome back to In the Gate British racing analyst and presenter Lydia Hislop. It's fabulous to be back with you. First of all, before we talk about the horses, let's catch everyone up on what it took to get here. Let's start with the shutdown. Unlike racing here in the States, the UK has a singular governing body, which makes it a little easier to plan out the calendar comprehensively so the races flow together well for horsemen. Since you chair the committee that makes schedule recommendations to the British Horse Racing Authority, take us inside the room. How did your team determine how to schedule the races in this new environment? Well, first of all, we weren't in a room. We were all on a Zoom call, as we, I think we've all got used to uh, seeing each other in boxes in various parts of the country. So I'm the chair of the Patent Committee in Britain. And so the hard graft is done by uh, the British Horse Racing Authority within that committee. So Ruth Quinn and her team, which involves Paul Johnson and Mike Waring. So, you know, they did the hard graft, and I chair it. And then we have a lot of different people who sit on the committee from different backgrounds in the sport. It's not a representative committee. It's, it's a committee that the people are there due to their expertise and their love for racing and their um, concern to ensure that British racing remains as competitive and strong as it is currently and that that remains. So we were faced with a a slightly different situation to usual in that we didn't have as much information as we would normally have. So at the time, there had been a complete shutdown. 
we didn't know when we were restarting and there were several abortive attempts at it. We were envisaging what would happen if we restarted in the middle of May, what would happen if we restarted in the second half of May, what happened if we would restart at the 1st of June and, you know, beyond that as well. So we had some different scenarios that we first of all talked about. So we first of all started talking about some broad principles about what we needed to get on. And we were looking to definitely running the generation defining races. So the Guineas, both Guineas at the Derby and the Oaks. And we then uh, looked to really fit the pattern around those races because you, I mean, you only get to be three year olds once. So we felt that that was the, our primary concern to make sure that we got those career defining races on, that we got stepping stones to those races scheduled at a reasonable time as possible. And then we started looking at the older horse program and the two year old program. Lots of these things were in theory at first, because, as I said, we didn't know when we were starting. And then when we did have a date, we didn't know which race courses would be having race days when because the original fixture list got essentially torn up, apart from some important things that were agreed. So it was agreed that the Guineas would be run in the first weekend in June and that the Derby and Oaks would be run in the first weekend in July. Also, Royal Ascot ended up staying where it was for various reasons. It was the best decision to have Royal Ascot staying where it was. It wasn't completely ideal in terms of we had to schedule a lot of two-year-old races to make sure that they had at least some experience going into Royal Ascot. We had to juggle around with the programme of Royal Ascot to accommodate the Guineas being immediately before it. So races like the St. James's Palace Stakes and the Clara Stakes moved to the end of the programme. And uh, we also had to think about the Darby Oaks being immediately after it. So uh, races like the King Edward VII and the Ribblesdale and the Hampton Court moved to the start of the week at Royal Ascot. So there were lots of things that sort of were juggled around. And we were just we were clear that the certain targets, the key targets that we had to hit. And I, I'm, I must say, I'm really delighted with, with what we've done. I, I feel that we have reacted to a very difficult situation. We've got the best fit for the industry and for these, these horses with a very little limited time we, we, we reacted very quickly I feel and we managed to bring about what I think is a was a very strong program which has been very well received and we now feel we're in a, a good place to be able to move back into the normal rhythm of the season so beyond next week and Newmarket's July meeting we'll be moving back into the normal rhythm of the season. I can just about feel the steam from all of the work it took to get that done So your team eyeballed, obviously, July 4th for the Derby and Oaks, but there was an unusually sticky wicket involving Epsom Downs itself. I read that part of the grounds of Epsom Racecourse is a public right-of-way and that it wasn't as easy as you'd think to get the place closed off in order to run these races without spectators. Can you explain what was going on with that? Well, I mean, in terms of detail, I, you know, I, I haven't seen it yet because obviously, you know, the movement has been restricted here. So that's exactly right. It's free land and downland in the middle of Epsom. And lots of racecourses in Britain are like that. You know, they're built with public access spaces wrapped around them or adjacent to them. So for many racecourses, it wasn't necessarily the, the simplest thing. So there were, there were long-running conversations between Epsom and the local council there, but the council were very, very keen to have uh, what is a key event in their calendar of the year to be run if it could be run safely. So, you know, there are all sorts of protocols for people to, to get onto the race course. And 
I will be interested to see, I've heard what Epsom has had to do, but I, I'd be interested to see what that in, in actuality means. For example, in new markets, there's free land nearby the, the race course and I have been there and you know you see the odd walker sort of standing on the hill as they're walking along watching the race courses but other than that there hasn't really been an issue and there's tight security on the gates and you have there's a list of people who have to have passed certain criteria in order to be on the race course so you, so it's very very difficult to enter but then there, there are with a number of race courses that access in other ways but the British public haven't been abiding by what they've been told, certainly in terms of sporting events. So with maybe the possible exception of the celebration of Liverpool winning the league. <laughs> the Premier oh, league. good Lord, this could get interesting. <laughs> so let's get to the race itself. English King hadn't been that highly regarded coming into the year, but now he comes off a smashing win, gets the services of Frankie Dettori for the first time. Dottori is, of course, on fire after once again topping the jockey list at Royal Ascot for the seventh time. This time, Dottori rode six winners. But how good is English King? It's really hard to say, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're working on much more limited evidence, much more unexposed horses than we would be normally with the Derby because uh, there have been fewer trial races, few, fewer stepping stone races for horses to get here. We've had the Irish Derby run before the the Derby. English King has won the, the Lingfield Derby trial. He won it quite comfortably in the end by two and three quarter lengths and Berkshire Rocco. And he, he looked looked like he completely outclassed that field. There's certainly no concern from him about stamina. He has got a thorough staying pedigree. He looked well balanced at Lingfield. That does have a, a downhill left-hand turn section, which is not exactly reminiscent of Tattenham Corner, but it does give a clue as to whether a horse is well balanced. And he looked lovely uh, around that corner the literal form isn't up to much but as i say he was in a different league to the rest of them and that was a massive step forward from his as you just said from his two-year-old ability to what he's shown us thus far which makes you think that we haven't seen the best of him yet Kamiko coming down the centre of the course. Military March is in behind that. They head down into the dip now. Pinatubo trying to see off Wichita. Kamiko behind those. And then Military March as they head into the closing stages. And it's Wichita at the moment in the purple cap. Kamiko the far side of him going through to league late on. Kamiko's won. Kamiko beat a mighty good field in the first three-year-old classic, the 2000 Guineas at Newmarket, just a few weeks ago. That field included the two-year-old champ, Pinatubo. The Guineas, though, was a flat, straight mile. How about Cameco at a mile and a half? Yeah, it's, it's kind of flattish. I mean, the thing about Newmarket, the Rolly Mile, is that it's very undulating. It can unbalance horses. So horses that travel well down it, again, you get a certain clue for whether they're going to be able to deal with the undulations of Epsom. And certainly Cameco was fine on that point. I've got a real concern about his stamina. Cameco, he's by Kitten's Joy. You'd be fairly confident he might get 10 furlongs. I think he might be a bang miler myself. I'd be more interested in the horses that he beat in the 2000 guineas, potentially stepping up a trip, not necessarily Pinatuba, more Wichita. And Kamiko, Sheen Murphy rode that day and, and rides the horse and will be riding the horse on, on Saturday. And he, I think he got the, the factions in that race exactly right. There was a bit of a burn up up front. Horses also committed early um, in in the 2000 guineas. And Kamiko, I think, was always in the right place at the right time. I'm not suggesting he was flattered. I think he's a high-class horse. But 
I do think that he received a more efficient ride than many of his rivals that day. And I do doubt whether his pedigree is up to a mile and a half Epsom, which is a very stiff mile and a half. Lydia Hislop is our guest here on In The Gate. So good to be back with Lydia. Not too much rain seems to be forecast in the London area leading up to the Derby. Who does that help and who does it hurt? Oh, God, big question. Uh, <laughs> off the top of my head, I mean, at the, I mean, again, my issue is with this, we've got less evidence than we would do normally. So that's a very good question, which I feel like I'm not very well placed to answer. I mean, you know, I, I know about some outsiders like Max Vega would like some cut in the ground. At the moment, I think Kamiko looks very, very comfortable on the top of the ground. English King by Camelot, again, was comfortable on a sound surface at Linkfield. So I think he'd be fine with that. Aidan O'Brien has obviously got a large number of horses heading over and, you know, they tend to be Galileas and they, you know, they love a, a sound surface, but they're very effective on a softer surface too. So it's harder to be dogmatic about this race than any other derby that I can recall. Aidan O'Brien's only sending seven of the 17 runners, by the way. Let's not <laughs> let's not shortchange the Oaks, which is being run on the same day as the Derby for the first time ever, I believe. Used to be that the Derby was run on Wednesday and the Oaks on Friday. Just as Aiden O'Brien sends out seven Derby runners, he sends out four in the Oaks, including the favorite, the Thousand Guineas winner Love, as well as the Irish Thousand Guineas winner Peaceful. But they'll have to contend with Frankly Darling for the great John Gosden. Frankly Darling won the Ribblesdale on day one of Royal Ascot. O'Brien and Gosden have combined to win the last six Oaks. How do you see this race shaping up? I think it's a fantastic race, actually. Uh, Love was very impressive in the 1,000 guineas. She won by four and a quarter lengths, and uh, it was a step forward. I mean, she was a relatively busy two-year-old, as is can often be the case with Aidan O'Brien, even top-class horses. So she ran seven times as a two-year-old. But she took another huge step forward, as her pedigree would suggest she would, as a three-year-old. Now, again, if you look at her pedigree, she is bred to do better at a mile and a half. You know, she's a full-fitter to Flattering, who was pretty decent at 10 furlongs and 12 furlongs, Group 3 level, and Peachtree, who stayed even further than a mile and a half. And there's, there's plenty of speed as well. You know, it's not, it's not just a one-dimensional family, and clearly she's just won the 1,000 guineas. She looked beautifully settled, beautifully balanced at Newmarket, and I feel she's going to stay and potentially even improve for the trip. Um, that makes her the likeliest winner, in my view. But frankly, Darling is very likely raced by comparison. And so therefore, you know, she is more unexposed. There is room for her to make a great deal of improvement. She's take, taken a big leap forward with each of her three starts so far. And she accounted for Ennis Diamond, uh, another Aidan O'Brien fillies, comfortably in the Ribblesdale at Royal Ascot. And it was a kind of a no-nonsense ride on that occasion from Frankie de Tory. He led two furlongs out. She had to keep on going for, for quite a long way and be quite tough. She's got a propensity to be slightly keen, which might be of concern. But as I say, she's growing up and, and improving all the time. I think this is a fantastic race. I'm really, really looking forward to it. There's some unexposed horses in there as well. I mean, the likes of the gold one. You mentioned Peaceful as well, the Irish Oaks winner who... Again, took a massive step forward on her on her start as a, as a three-year-old, and has already proved her stamina for the trip. And you know, you, you can't be convinced that she that we've seen the best of her just yet. So sorry, I, mean, I said Irish Oaks, I meant Irish One Thousand Guineas. She took a huge step forward in that. My only concern with her is: is she going to be able to see out the trip? Her dam was a, a very quick 
filly and she's produced quite a lot of quick horses with one exception. I just wonder about the extra trip for Peaceful, whereas I think it's right up Love Street. I'm not completely certain with Peaceful. My wife, by the way, will be rooting for Queen Daenerys. She's a big Game of Thrones fan. Now, you started to get into this a little bit before, but aside from there not being any spectators so far at any of these fixtures, at what point in the racing calendar, at least in Europe, will the order of events start to feel normal, do you think? I think it depends on each country, really. In Britain, we are moving towards normality, as it were. There are still some things that have moved around. So basically, in, in terms of the major upheavals, I think the major upheavals will have ceased by the end of next week. Um, and we will back, be back into a more normal calendar. However, at the moment, the fixture list is only uh, drawn up until the end of August. And also, we've got fewer fixtures per day up until that point. That has meant that some races have had to move but we're only talking about like three or four days difference to what they would be normally. They've managed to pretty much keep the balance as it is. You know, there's one or two minor exceptions, but that's where we are. But the fixture list from September onwards hasn't yet been agreed. So we don't actually know what that looks like. We assume, and you know, it seems reasonable to assume that it will be even more like the original scheduled list. But you know, we, we cannot be sure that we'll go back to the previous number of fixtures or whether we'll continue the existing pared-down number of fixtures but an increased number of races per fixture. Um, Ireland have managed to draw a programme whereby not one of their pattern races has been lost. They have a much smaller pattern than Britain does. So Britain's had to accept in the early part of the year that they lost a number of pattern races. Ireland have managed to rejig their races so that not none of them are lost. So that means that there are some races that are turning up a lot later in the season than you would imagine. Tattersall's Gold Cup is the one that immediately springs to mind. Well, fortunately, neither you nor I have to quarantine for 14 days after speaking on the phone. Not so sure if we were to do that in person, but it shapes up to be a great weekend of racing in Britain with the Derby and Oaks and, of course, Enable coming back to the races in the Coral Eclipse at Sandown on Sunday. So thank you so much, Lydia. Have a great weekend. Thank you very much, Barry. I'm really looking forward to it. It should be a fantastic weekend of racing in Britain. Did you ever read the book, Who Moved My Cheese? There may be such a moment coming for the thoroughbred industry involving stable workers. We'll get into that when the In The Gate podcast continues. Welcome back to In The Gate. Who Moved My Cheese is a book written two decades ago about four mice who live in a maze and look for cheese to make them happy. The characters are faced with unexpected change when the cheese is moved from where they expect it to be. Eventually, one of the four mice deals with it successfully. The other three just founder. Who Moved My Cheese is a wonderful parable for dealing with fundamental change in your personal life, your job, or anywhere else. There may be a Who Moved My Cheese moment coming for the thoroughbred racing world here in the United States, and it has to do with what are called H-2B visas. The federal government has put restrictions on the number of people allowed to enter the country on a variety of different visas, among them H-2B visas. We've discussed this topic before on this show. H-2B visas are for temporary, non-immigrant workers who perform non-agricultural labor. 
Horse racing is considered non-agricultural from the standpoint of visas. However, at other times, it's more advantageous for horses to be considered livestock rather than pets, such as in the Agricultural Improvement Act passed by Congress in 2018. The livestock designation allows owners to seek compensation for damaged property, like if a farm burned down and horses were killed. A pet designation doesn't allow for damages. Now, if you think that's horse owners talking out of both sides of their mouths, then consider this. On March 5th of this year, a week before the pandemic forced a worldwide shutdown, the federal government had announced that 35,000 additional H-2B visas would be issued this year, bringing the expected total to around 70,000. Typically, around 66,000 are issued each year. Horsemen said that 70,000 numbers still might not need their needs, but they were happy nonetheless. But in June, in the wake of COVID-19, the government announced severe restrictions on all types of visas. No more of them will be issued for the calendar year. Did somebody say, who moved my cheese? Immediately, horse industry trade groups like the Kentucky Equine Education Project issued a stern rebuke to the government's restrictions, saying that H-2B visas are critical to Kentucky's horse industry. Presumably, the implication is that a restriction on visas would threaten the industry. Now, I am absolutely not here to get political or to choose sides. My point here is that this is a classic case of who moved my cheese. Is there a way for the horsemen and potentially available help here in this country, namely a huge unemployed workforce, to find each other? For some insight into this concept, we welcome in Professor Janice Fine, who was a professor in the Rutgers University School of Management and Labor Relations. Immigrant labor, labor standards enforcement, and community organizing strategies are among her specialties. So welcome, Professor Fine. Let's start here. How do you get people like horsemen out of the this is how we do it because this is how we've always done it mentality, which to me is part of what's in play here? So I think that we're all in a moment given COVID-19 and the enormous economic recession that we're in, that we're heading into, to rethink business models kind of across the board. I've been thinking about this a lot with regard to small business, but I think it's probably true in general. So I think taking a step back and talking about what we want the principles of our labor markets to look like, what are the most important principles that we think that our labor market should reflect, and that includes horse racing. So it's a time when we can go back to first principles and say, okay, how does the industry recruit and treat its workers and how might we like the industry to recruit and treat its workforce? Since the pandemic hit in March, 39 million people have filed for unemployment in the United States. They might not have 10 to 20 years of experience working with horses as people coming from Mexico and South America, but there is a workforce out there. Why do you think horsemen, owners and trainers, don't seem to be interested in finding those people? I think that you can answer the question in two words, cheap labor. And I think that 
what has to be really clear is that workers are not, um, immigrant workers are not given an opportunity to negotiate for higher wages, better conditions, better living conditions. These workers are often living in really substandard housing, not being paid their overtime. You know, there are there's many examples of low-wage immigrant workers in these industries being terribly exploited. The wage and hour division bringing cases that have resulted in millions of dollars to what are they called? Backstretch workers and some of the other workers that do the training. So what we have to remember is that the reason why the industry is reliant on H-2B workers who are notoriously poorly treated and exploited and undocumented workers is because they're paying substandard wages and they're treating workers in substandard ways. Now, that being said, they still say they love their workers. They still say they wouldn't have an industry without these workers doing the work that they're doing, that without these workers, you know, some people joke that if horses could talk, they would be speaking Spanish because these workers are so essential to the industry. Um, and if that's true, you know, then they should be provided family-supported wages, safe housing, safe working conditions, decent hours, and anyone should be provided with that, whether they're U.S.-born U.S. workers not part of the H-2B program or whether they're H-2B program workers coming in from outside. Everybody benefits when, you know, there are livable wages that are set and enforced in the labor market, and that includes in horse racing. And hence the both sides of their mouth reference I made in our open. Can you explain the rules that go with people who are in this country on H-2B visas? Yeah, sure. The issues are that, first of all, when they come, they have very, very few rights. Their visa is tied to one employer. And that means that if those workers are experiencing labor issues, unpaid wages, or they get there, the promises that were made about their housing aren't true, or they're being sweated in terms of how many hours they're expected to work, exposed to unsafe conditions, they really have no option. Because when they leave their work, because it's tied to just one employer, if they leave that employer, they become undocumented, and they're expected to leave to go home. So there are a set of issues around who pays for their travel to the United States. It's supposed to be that the employer pays for it, who pays for their housing, and what kind of labor rights do they have? What wage rate are they entitled to? Whether they can, uh, whether they have any labor rights and their mobility between employers. So those are are some of the issues that come up. And so we have, you know, two kinds of workers: undocumented immigrant workers who are you know, afraid to raise any issues often because they're afraid that they're going to be threatened with losing their jobs. And of course, you know, for workers like this, they're in a situation where they're willing to work for substandard wages and conditions because they don't have any bargaining power unless they come together collectively. But it's very hard for them to exercise their rights because they're undocumented and because they've got very few labor protections. And then you have workers from H2B who are legal workers and those numbers have been climbing over the last few years, but they also have very limited rights. So that's the, you know, the workforce. And the point is that a lot of U.S. workers don't choose to work in these sectors because the pay is so low, conditions are so bad, the expectation about how many hours they're going to work, that they're going to sleep where they work, live in substandard housing by these um, racetracks, um, in these racetracks in many cases, right? So what's happened is as the industry's conditions deteriorated, U.S. workers were no longer being hired because employers realized that they could hire this very 
you know, skilled and dedicated and committed workforce for a fraction of the cost. And so that's what's happened. Eddie Woods runs a prominent thoroughbred training center and sales operation in Ocala, Florida. He was forced recently to pay $66,000 to more than 40 seasonal workers he employs because of mistakes in following visa rule requirements. When asked about employing seasonal workers versus U.S. citizens, Woods said, We advertise in three different states in high unemployment areas. We hardly ever get any applications. It's nearly impossible anymore to find people to work on a farm. Professor Fine, what do you make of this statement? Well, I think, first of all, that the system, the existing H-2B program is kind of rigged. So when they say they advertise, they're advertising at the quote-unquote prevailing wage rate in this particular sector, which means that the rate is extremely low. And so the first question is, what does it really mean that they're advertising and who are they advertising to? And the second is they have to face up to the facts that, you know, they, they don't want to hire U.S. workers and they're setting the wages and working conditions so low that they're not family supporting wages. And so, you know, we have a long tradition of immigrant workers come to the U.S. and in the first couple of years, they accept whatever jobs they can they can find. They compare their wages to the wages of what they were able to earn back home. And of course, usually that is a favorable comparison, no matter how bad the job is in the U.S. And then over time, right, they have the firsthand experience of, you know, there's this old expression about immigrant workers come because they've been told the streets are paved with gold, but nobody told them that they're the ones who are supposed to do the paving. And so he's not the only one, right? Chad Brown, you know, huge, right? Is that who you mentioned, Chad Brown, or were you talking about somebody else? No, but Chad Brown certainly has been in hot water with regard to his pay to his workers. That's $1.6 million in back wages that he's owed. And, you know, it's, it's, he didn't pay overtime. He worked people more than 40 or, uh, hours a week. He didn't keep required time and payroll records. He collected payment from his workers for visa costs, which are required to be paid by the employer. He didn't reimburse his employees' transportation and subsistence costs for travel from their home countries, misrepresented the place of employment, the job terms and condition, the availability of free housing, right? So, you know, didn't provide information about workers in a language that they could understand. So, you know, that's the, the situation. This is a workforce that's being horribly exploited. But it's really important to understand, it's not immigrant workers who brought conditions down. It's that the industry brought conditions down. And that meant that there was an exodus from the industry of U.S. workers. So the workers who've come in to replace them have been immigrant workers. It's really important to understand that often immigrant workers are blamed for poor conditions rather than understanding that poor conditions are what end up leading to undocumented and low-wage immigrant workers coming into these sectors. And so really the answer is that if you can reinvent the sector, if you can recreate the business model, you'd want to do it in a way that all workers who come to work are humanely treated, have family supporting wages, you know, have the right to organize, to come together with their fellow workers to fight for strong, you know, for better conditions. And also, you know, in this moment when there's such a discussion about race in our country, you know, there's clearly a racial hierarchy in terms of what industrial relations, what the labor market looks like, you know, in this sector where you have Latinx workers on the very bottom. And then, you know, the industry gets whiter and wealthier as you go up, you know, all the way to the owners. So, you know, this is an industry that's been relying on an underclass. And the question is, is this a moment of reckoning? 
Professor Janice Fine of Rutgers University's School of Management and Labor Relations joins us here on In the Gate. Well, if you look at this period in our country as a chance to change the model, in your experience, what is the best way to get these two sides to talk to each other, the farm owners, thoroughbred horsemen, and this growing batch of unemployed workers in this country? Well, I think that it's it's a really good question. Like, I think in terms of the sector, it's got to start with a conversation first among the industry leaders, right? There's got to be kind of a reckoning among industry leaders about what are they doing? You know, how can they justify the labor conditions that we're seeing? There has to be a discussion between those owners and, you know, industry leaders and government, both the U.S. Department of Labor, the New York State Department of Labor, the, you know, it depends on the state, right? Because we see this across the board in Kentucky and California and New York. So there's got to be industry participation. There's got to be government saying, you know, this has to change. And then, you know, there has to be major reforms in the H-2B program. Workers need to have mobility, right? They, there needs to be much more mobility between employers so that when they come, and they want to organize to better conditions. They can't face retaliation and blacklists, you know, that, that employers know that there are certain behaviors that are beyond the pale. And if they engage in them, the fines are going to be very, very, very punitive. And then, so they have to have the right to organize. Without the right to organize, you know, that's what we know, you know, from labor history, that workers have have to have the right to organize in order to improve conditions. And then there has to be improvements in the H-2B program starting first and foremost with protections against retaliation for organizing and mobility between employers in terms of the visas that these workers receive and much, much closer scrutiny of wages and working conditions. You know, part of the problem is that there's almost no enforcement so that, you know, the assumption that's built into our system is that when workers are exploited, they'll complain. But the idea that low-wage Immigrant workers, desperate for the work, are going to come forward, particularly those who are here on on temporary visas. And, you know, remember, when they come on temporary visas, they're here for a couple of years. And then if they want to be brought back again, then it's really important that they not make trouble because otherwise they're going to be put on a blacklist and intentionally not brought back the next year. So we need comprehensive changes that start with the industry sitting down with the workforce sitting down with organizations that work with this workforce. You know, um, in every one of these states, there are immigrant worker organizations and immigrant rights organizations and community leaders who are very capable and in many cases are already providing all kinds of support to this workforce. So it's got to be a coming together of government, civil society organizations, and the workers themselves and the industry leaders to decide that this is something they want to do. That's what it's going to take. It sounds like an immense undertaking, but in this period of significant change in this country, who knows if this might become part of the new model of doing business. Well, thank you so much, Professor Fine, for sharing this. This is extremely enlightening for an industry that may be facing a significant upheaval. My pleasure. Our thanks once again to Professor Janice Fine and Lydia Hislop. Bob Baffert recently talked of running his Philly Gamine in the Derby against the boys instead of the Kentucky Oaks. In an ordinary year, Gamine would have to qualify by running a points race against the blokes. But Baffert added something curious when talking about the Derby. He said that this year's field might not be full. If 20 horses aren't entered, then points no longer matter. And while it isn't clear whether Baffert's talking bull, 
The thought of a reduced derby field is an exaggerated example of a point we highlighted on this show last week that field sizes for stakes races are unusually low, but the summer race fields shouldn't be as bleak. If the derby doesn't draw 20, then American racing will notice, and not just because the Philly Gamine would run. The sport would be confronted with a continuing need to evolve because five-horse fields for major stakes isn't fun. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can find us on Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really help others find us, and maybe some of those others would be the geniuses in America's Best Racing, and maybe they'll do what they should have done last year, include us in the Fan Choice Awards for Best Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We hope this finds you safe and healthy as you listen to this, and we'll see you next time.